This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 180, Beaches. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Drawing a line in the sand is a common expression in English, and the beach has plenty of sand and plenty of opportunities to draw lines. When does comfort become complacency? When does relaxation become laziness? This week we will discuss Paul's day on the beach and how it informs the book of Philippians, our influence at the beach and whether we're part of the solution or part of the problem, beach music and whether Jesus would sing along, and whether a beach trip without beach activities is worth the effort. We'll start with what I've been preaching. When you think of beaches, likely your thoughts run to sunny skies, warm breezes, swaying palm trees, basically getting away from it all. But if you're about to die on the high seas, your thoughts go in a different direction. I don't have any firsthand experience with this, but I've read Acts 27 and tried to put myself in the shoes of Paul and the others on the ship bound for Rome, and I strongly suspect that in moments like this, expressions such as, I would do absolutely anything to feel sand between my toes right now, takes on a whole new depth of meaning. We read in Acts 27:39, when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. Generally, wrecking his ship is literally the last thing a ship's captain wants to do. But circumstances were dire. They'd been driven by a storm for 14 days at that point. The ship was falling apart, literally, despite efforts to undergird it. Virtually everything on board had been jettisoned, including the cargo that was going to pay for the trip. But the beach meant life. You won't drown on the beach. Getting the people to shore was the only priority. English writer and philosopher Samuel Johnson said, When a man knows he is to be hanged, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. I suspect any other kind of death accomplishes the same purpose. Nitpicky details such as paying bills, clearing one's name of false charges, knowing where in the world you happen to be at the moment, etc. just fade into the background. They did for Paul. I suspect they would for me as well. Living and dying. In moments like this, that is all that matters. Perhaps it's not surprising, then, that the only man on the ship who seemed to be utterly at peace with the situation was the one who had the least concern about death. Paul would later write in Philippians 1, verse 27, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Perhaps being void of the fear of death freed him up to minimize the details of life. In fact, a great many phrases from Philippians seem to reflect back to the Malta shipwreck. Chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Chapter 3, verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How can it be that we as Christians live in the same world as our neighbors, and yet we do not suffer the same pangs of stress? It's simply because, as Paul said also in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, a quotation that may sound familiar from one of your favorite podcasts, our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is simply not their home. Our hope is not their hope. Our joy is not their joy. And that's a good thing for us because what we find on the beach with God, if you will, is a peace that is consistent and timeless 
and unaffected by circumstances. We discussed peace in a different podcast a few weeks ago. And if we find that we are not in that peace zone, if we can't find contentment and satisfaction in life because of our circumstances, maybe there's too much of the world in us. Maybe we need to back up and assess what our home really is, what our hope really is, what our joy really is. When we find ourselves being beaten up by the storms of life, the peace that we find is not simply getting through the problems to a place where we don't have problems. Paul was at peace long before he landed on the beach. Our peace comes from knowing that Jesus is Lord and that heaven is our home. If you have that kind of attitude, you don't have to wait for good circumstances. You don't have to wait for sand between your toes to know that you're where you need to be. You can have that anytime, any place. This is what I've been reading. I suppose I was looking around for a book that would say in so many words, it's a sin to go to the beach and take most of your clothes off and parade out in front of God and everybody. I didn't find that book, partly because I kind of quit looking for it. At some point during this process, I decided that I've been taking the wrong approach toward beach clothing. So now instead of looking for the appropriate number of square inches of fabric that we must be wearing at all times, or whether it's okay to have fewer square inches in certain circumstances than in other circumstances. Instead, I want to approach the concept of beach attire from a more philosophical standpoint. One of the books that I did find was The Power of Your Influence by Stan Toller, which I was hoping would be a Bible-centered approach to the idea of the influence that we have and the influence that we should try to be. It's not that. It's not really a scriptural book at all. He does quote the Bible every once in a while, but it's really much more of a John Maxwell thing than an Apostle Paul thing. That doesn't mean it's worthless. doesn't mean it has no value. It's just it is what it is, as they say. And Toller does a pretty good job of illustrating the kind of influence that we are going to be, not the kind of influence that we should be or that we should want to be, but rather the influence that simply exists. Because we live in a society, because we interact at one level or another with other human beings, there is going to be influence. It's just the nature of things. You don't have to like it. You don't have to embrace it, but it's true. And he illustrates in a chapter that he calls Three Dimensions of Influence, three different ways in which this influence is taking place. And I think it's worth a look for a few minutes here today. There is the influence with regard to our own selves. What am I subjecting myself to? What kind of a person am I becoming because of my surroundings? And of course, this point, like the others, is going to be useful not just at the beach, but pretty much any other situation where we find ourselves interacting with other people. Rather than comparing my bathing suit to somebody else's bathing suit or comparing women's clothing and men's clothing, instead, let's first of all look at ourselves. What kind of a person do I become in this environment? 1 Corinthians 15.33, although it's not the main point, famously tells us evil companionships corrupt good morals. It's true in a doctrinal sense in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but it's true in other contexts as well, including morality. If I surround myself with wickedness, 
it's reasonable to assume I'm going to become more wicked, or at least that I very well might become more wicked. It's certainly something to keep an eye on. It's the story of Lot in Wicked Sodom. Bad things happen when I'm surrounded by bad things. It seems only prudent that I should govern the things that I expose myself to, to a certain degree. And this is where the Walmart argument comes in, and I find this to be a very effective argument. Somebody says, well, you're going to expose yourself to just as much lewdness, just as much ugliness in Walmart as you would at the beach. The point's well made. The point's well taken. Now, I've tried in times past to distinguish between the motives of the people who dress the way they dress at Walmart and the people who dress the way they dress at the beach. I think that was largely an effort in futility on my part. I'm not sure that that argument works very well for people who disagree with me. I'm not sure it should work very well. Surely the much more important point is, what kind of a person am I becoming? Am I becoming a lustful person? Am I becoming a carnal person in a general sense? Do I draw closer to Jesus in these environments? Or if you prefer, do I find myself pulling further away from Jesus in these environments? The second level of influence is the influence that I have on others. Am I making a positive difference for Jesus by going into a certain place the way that I am? This has to do with the clothes that I personally wear, the things that I personally approve of, etc. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16 tells us that we are lights in the world. We need to shine in darkness. And that means, in a general sense at least, behaving in a way that is fundamentally different than the people in the world. Can you do that on the beach? Absolutely you can. Can you do that on the beach surrounded by people who don't seem on the surface, not want to judge by appearances too much, but seem on the surface to not really have too much with regard to moral concerns? That might be a little bit more touchy of a subject. If I'm putting myself in a position where I am doing good for the Lord, that's something of value. If I am encouraging people in sin, that's something I need to avoid. The third level of influence is much broader than that. It characterizes it by the word reputation. What reputation do I want strangers to have of me, especially in the social media era? The pictures that I take of myself, the pictures that I take of my family and put up on the social media have an impact on people that I barely know, if at all. That's relevant. I am contributing to the moral climate of the world in a much broader sense than I may appreciate in the moment. 1 Peter chapter 4 warns us about the difference that we're going to find between ourselves and the people of the world. He says in verse 4, In all of this they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. And he goes on to say, they'll give account. We'll give account too. He goes on later in the chapter to talk about how we may be disparaged because of the name that we wear. And that's not a bad thing. Being disparaged for sin, that's bad. We don't want to do that. We need to make sure that the cause of Christ is attached to Jesus, attached to his values, rather than somehow twisting the values of Jesus and making them accommodate the things of the world. I guess the bigger point is this. Lots of times we choose our vacation spots simply because that is where we want to go, simply because it pleases me. And I would offer you to you that that is a bad way of making any decision in this life. Because the first and foremost priority as Christians must always be, how do I glorify Jesus? Whether I'm on the beach, whether I'm on the ski slope, 
whether I'm in school, at work, wherever it happens to be, this day is the day that I glorify Jesus. Every single day is about showing the world who we are. So I need to find a way in any environment I find myself in to do exactly that, to look like a Christian, to talk like a Christian, to draw people toward the light of Jesus Christ, and do whatever I can to keep the process from working in the opposite direction. This is what I've been hearing. I'll be honest with you, I don't especially like the beach. And living for eight years, about 10 miles away from one of the most beautiful beaches in the world, did not change my attitude with regard to that. When the Hammonds family goes on vacation, we tend very strongly to gravitate toward go, 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 do stuff, activities, staying busy, all that kind of thing. And a beach vacation is completely the opposite of that. The idea of just sitting in the sand, drinking a nice non-alcoholic beverage, maybe reading a book, taking a nap, remembering to put on your sunscreen, that sort of thing. It's just not me. Maybe it is you, and that's fine for you. I will tell you this, though, about eight years in Pensacola. I came to appreciate the beauty of the beach, the serenity. There's something to be said for beach life. In principle, at least, I like the idea of simply relaxing, taking a load off, shucking off the cares of the day, and just existing. If I ever do take a beach vacation, I strongly suspect I'm going to be listening to the Beach Boys about 90% of the time. I wouldn't say necessarily the Beach Boys are my favorite band. I will say this, though. When I'm in a good mood, I want to stay in a good mood. If I want to just kind of relax and take it easy and appreciate the positive things of life, oftentimes I'll seek out the Beach Boys. Probably my favorite Beach Boys song is Don't Worry Baby. It's one of those songs that seems to fit musically the theme of the song. Don't worry, baby. Everything will turn out all right. When you actually look at the lyrics, it's a little more complicated than that. The reason that Brian Wilson's a little stressed out in the moment is because he is racing cars and he may lose his car if he's not fast enough. And his girlfriend simply says, baby, when you race today, just take along my love with you. And if you knew how much I loved you, baby, nothing could go wrong with you. Well, that's nice. A little myopic, a little naive, but nice. I totally understand the idea of being emboldened, being encouraged in a moment, knowing that somebody is on your side and that giving you moral strength, even physical strength in a time of difficulty. I emphasize this though. Simply having people on your side does not guarantee success. I don't know how it turned out for Brian Wilson in his car race. But I can say this for anyone who's thinking about engaging in a similar activity out there. It's more complicated than simply having good thoughts, having good vibrations, having encouragement on your side. There is no circumstance in this world where nothing can go wrong with you. If that makes me the voice of doom and gloom and negativity, I apologize. Actually, I'm trying to be exactly the opposite here. Because when Jesus says, don't worry, 
he means something very different than Brian Wilson. He's not saying everything is going to turn out okay as far as the events of life. You're going to win the football game. You're going to get the big promotion. The pretty girl in school with you is going to say yes when you ask her out on a date. That does not necessarily follow. Anyone who's lived any length of time at all in the world knows that things go wrong. And when you come into Jesus and you become a Christian, that doesn't change. It may not sound very preachery of me to say something like that, but I assure you it's true. After 40 plus years of experience, I know it to be true. Things do go wrong. But when Jesus sends his love with us, it doesn't mean that all of the bad things are going to stop, all the good things are going to multiply. He means something far, far bigger than that. The love of Jesus in our lives doesn't remove our concerns. It puts our concerns in a proper context. Again, with Philippians this week, Philippians chapter four is a passage that has a lot of encouraging statements, a lot of positive energy, if you will. We've referred to several of those verses already, but I'd like especially to turn to one that is perhaps a little bit overlooked. After he says in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. He says in verse five, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, he says this immediately before, saying, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We know those two verses pretty well. But look at what he says, introducing that thought. Your gentle spirit, this spirit of not passivity necessarily, but of willingness to accept the world as it is. Not fussing, not fuming, not complaining. A gentle spirit. Let everybody see how you're dealing with adversity. And the way you deal with adversity, the positive way is implied here. The positive way that you deal with adversity is by knowing that the Lord is near. Not near to remove your problems, but near to help you through these problems. When Jesus sends his love with us, we know for a fact that we are in good hands. He may or may not take us around our difficulties, our hardships, our pain and suffering, but we know for a fact that he will bear us through those problems. And we will emerge on the other side with this peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. That's how he gives us this strength. That's how we are able to do all things, because we are in the arms of Jesus, the one who strengthens us. This is what I've been playing. Santa Monica is one of the only games that I have specifically bought for the podcast. I figured at some point I was going to want to do an episode about beaches, and I could try to find a game about sharks and shark attacks, things like that. Or I could find a game about shopping and bird watching and playing volleyball and spending a nice happy day down by the pier. I went with option number two. Probably wouldn't have done it if it had been full price. Again, Hal Hammond's famous tightwad, back better than ever. But I got it at a pretty steep discount at a used bookstore. For 20 bucks, it's a good game. In Santa Monica, it's your job to draw people to your little chunk of the beach in sunny Southern California. 
But once you get the people there, you have to give them something to do. I find that to be an interesting concept, especially in the context of the Lord's Church. Oftentimes, I find myself content with the idea of numbers for the sake of numbers. Wouldn't it be great if we had 100 visitors today? Wouldn't it be great if we had 100 conversions this year? Yes, it would. Absolutely. But in the big picture, is that really the point? Surely the point is to glorify Jesus, not to improve the numbers, which is to say glorify Hal. If we were to get people in the door, or even put people on the roll, but not give them a job, not give them anything to do, I suspect in many situations, if not most situations, the end result would be worse rather than better. They say idle hands are the devil's tools. An idle mind is the devil's workshop, and that's absolutely true. We need to find a way not just to attract people to our little corner of the Lord's vineyard, but also help them become part of the landscape. Help them become part of this part of the vineyard that drew them to the Lord and that ultimately, God willing, will draw somebody else as well. We are not drawn into the presence of Jesus simply so we can have a nice day at the beach, simply so that we can be where good things are happening. We are called to work. I realize that work is a four-letter word, sorry, old joke, to a lot of people. But it's true. And in the big picture, the people who are called, the people who find themselves in the body of Christ are going to be happier when they're working. They're going to be happier, more contented, more fulfilled when they're actually doing something. We've been in Philippians a lot this week. I found myself drawn again to Philippians chapter 1 and verse Three, where Paul writes, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of, especially verse five here, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And he goes on in the next few verses talking about how their participation works and how it grows, how your involvement in the call of Christ changes, adapts, grows, develops. You become more involved, more active. You become the kind of person that other people can rely upon. You become a leader for a new generation of Christians. It doesn't work the same way for everybody. It's not expected to. But it does work in some way for everybody, at least everybody who wants the process to work. It's like Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 20 and 21. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Our job is not to graduate to some higher level, but rather, job one, clean yourself up, make sure you're the best that you can be where you are, and then serve Jesus where you are. Maybe tomorrow or next year, it'll be in a different place, and that's fine. The Lord will take us where he takes us. But wherever you happen to be, be active in the Lord's service. We're all important in our place, whether we are one talent, two talent, five talent, 50 talent people. Find the role that you are meant to play and then play in that role. You'll be more content. The church will be more effective. Jesus will be more glorified. He didn't call you to sit on the sideline and look at the sights. He called you to work. He called you to serve. Find a place to do that. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. 
If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.